You're listening to a Radio 1 91FM podcast. The International Science Journal Wellbeing, Space and Society has recently published findings from University of Otago researchers which indicate that Aotearoa New Zealand needs to increase the diversity and quality of its housing stock to meet the needs of Aotearoa's diverse population and meet its 2030 carbon reduction targets. We are now joined by research fellow Dr. Crystal Olin from the New Zealand Centre of Sustainable Cities, who's going to tell us about how we can achieve a more sustainable future through changing housing, public transport and developing communal spaces. Kia ora. Kia ora, thank you for having me. So what is so problematic about the conventional development style which we currently have in New Zealand that focuses on standalone homes and small, densely packed apartments? Um, well, that's exactly part of um, what the problem is, is that there is a, a limit of choice um, in, in Aotearoa at the moment. So there's quite the um, emphasis still on providing single-family, um, low-density homes or the densely packed um, inner-city apartments without sufficient um, communal space or access to um, public spaces where people can come together socially or do other things. Um, what, what that means is that you've got um, housing that's catering to only some of our population and not the wider spectrum, which is, um, you know, quite a diverse population. So we're missing um, some of those middle options, which might be medium-density housing that could accommodate, um, for example, multi-generational family arrangements. Um, that doesn't necessarily need to be one large house that contains multiple generations of one family within it, but it could be you know, um, a sort of medium density uh, neighborhood in which you've got grandparents who live a couple doors down or you know, you've got different kinds of models where um, people can live in proximity to each other and, and thrive in that proximity. Um, and also... Um, in terms of enabling people to get to know um, one another that they might not already know. So the importance of being able to sort of um, encounter your neighbors um, in the spaces around where you live, um, you know, experience diversity on the streetscape, experience um, that sociality um, that and combat isolation um, through having, say, a park or a lovely plaza or even just... Um, some nice places to sit um, around where you where you live outside. Um, the other thing that's lacking quite a lot in New Zealand is um, actually that accompanying um, green space. So, you know, there's a lot of research that demonstrates the importance of having access to um, green space, either visually and or actually literally being able to go into a park or a reserve or a street line, a, a tree-lined street. Um, is actually really um, positively impactful on people's well-being. Um, at the moment, sort of the green spaces, we do have a lot of them, but they aren't necessarily immediately accessible to people's everyday homes and their everyday patterns of living. Um, so how to build that into our, our development patterns as well. What is the link between well-being and well-designed housing? Um, so... That's complex and contested, and it's not always the same in, in every place. You know, people are different in different places. Um, you know, different understandings of what um, well-being 
um, actually is. Um, cross different cultures can impact in terms of the role that that housing plays. And um, so there's no sort of one one model fits all, um, which is part of the reason why we made a diversity of choice. But they're all across cultures, people need homes that they feel secure in. Um, whether that's renting or buying, they need to know that that home is theirs, um, you know, for a, a substantial amount of time, if not indefinitely, that they're not at risk of, of losing that home um, definitely and that that's, um, you know, not out of their control. Um, people need warm, dry, well-ventilated homes. So, you know, New Zealand is notorious for uh, cold, leaky, damp, drafty homes, and that's not that's not good for people, both in terms of their physical well-being uh, as well as their um, emotional and mental well-being. Uh, people need homes that you know that can speak to their identities and that accommodate uh, their everyday lives and, and the lives of their their now and and you know homes that they're proud of that they want to invite um, family and friends into that they you know are able to. You know, to host and to and to have that, um, you know, that generosity to extend outward. Um, they need to feel connected. Um, so, you know, one of the problematic things with the suburban uh, development models, where you have these single-family homes, is that you know people can be too spread out and not easily connected to others. It might be difficult to access um, other people who they need or want to spend their time with. Um, and that isolation is, is really hard on people's well-being. So, you know, where we've got housing models that can actually facilitate people coming together, um, there are lots of um, proven benefits to that and, and how people be able to flourish. Your research also talks about public transport and how that can lead to a more sustainable future. Do public transport systems need to be structured more effectively or do cities need to be developed differently to accommodate more usage of public transport? I would say both of those things are true. Um, so we need, you know, we need access to public transport and we need public transport that runs efficiently and regularly. So, um, you know, when when someone wants to go get a train or a bus, they need to know that it's reliably going to be there when it says it will be there. Um, you know, the Swiss people are particularly good at that, and the Germans. Um, New Zealand, you know, there's quite a lot of variability. I take the train myself, and, you know, it's usually not arriving when it says it will arrive, and the buses are even worse. So... I do think that the system itself actually needs to improve. Um, we could benefit from buses as well that actually work with the way that our cities are laid out. So these really large empty buses that are running, very large buses that are running empty for a good portion of the day aren't necessarily maximizing um, the potential there. Um, and smaller buses that actually don't get stuck on the sort of windy, narrow roads um, and can perhaps more run, run more often or there could be more of them at the same time running um, might actually suit the New Zealand context a bit better. Um, and we need to look at how we lay out our, our development. So, you know, individual houses, are it's important that they can, they can stand as long as they can stand. So the sustainability of any building is important, but it lasts a lot longer in terms of thinking about cities and landscapes. 
that lasts a lot longer than an individual building a house. Is the city or the street, the network of streets that um, structure how those buildings and houses are are laid out. So we need to actually get those streets um, laid out effectively from the beginning and ensure that they're well connected up so that public transport is viable. Um, there's something called um, transit-oriented development um, that is a term that's used in some other contexts. I haven't heard it too much in New Zealand, but um, basically there's a there's a good model of development that looks at clustering um, both homes and a variety of other uses, so shops and retail and schools and you know public buildings and such um, around where you've got transport nodes and corridors. And I know that's something that New Zealand's looking at increasing nationwide um, in terms of densifying along transport corridors and nodes. Um, so if we if we get that right in terms of how we do that, that could um, really be beneficial as well. Now you mentioned, um, was it German public transport and other European structures? Is there yeah. another country or community style we should be looking for to for inspiration to model off of? Uh, that's a good question. I think um, I'm from the states originally, and I've always uh, taken an international perspective on things. I think New Zealand's a very special place. Um, there's nowhere in the world quite like it, and so. I wouldn't suggest that any one model in, a, in another country would be appropriate um, to sort of copy and paste into Aotearoa, but um, there are certainly lessons. Um, Aotearoa is a relatively young country, um, particularly when it comes to the kind of development that we're looking at now as we densify and grow. And there are lessons that can be learned from overseas. Um, and the benefit is that New Zealand doesn't have to make all of the same mistakes that have been made, for example, in the States or in different parts of Europe. We can look at what hasn't worked there and perhaps not go down that same road and actually look at what has worked and then look at how that could be adapted um, to the local communities and cultures here. So I'd say there's not the one place in particular to look, but there are some really encouraging sustainable development models um, that are being um, trialed and researched in all sorts of other countries, including Australia and the States and Canada and um, different countries in in Europe. So it's worth having a look at what's going on around the world and then see what New Zealand might want to sort of um, trial here and adapt to the local context. So for Aotearoa, what stands in our way for us creating these more sustainable communities and how can we get on the path towards establishing a sustainable future for housing? Mm. I think there are a number of things. Um, one of the things is it, it's not so much what's standing in our way as what could open up um, and dissolve some of those barriers. Um, first of all, it's just encouraging a, a shift in mindset about you know, what the New Zealand dream is. I know that's happening um, with, you know, up-and-coming generations, but I would encourage it even more. Um, There's a variety of different ways, right, that we can live and be happy. There's not just one recipe for everyone. So, you know, moving away from that conventional idea of the, you know, house and the yard and 2.5 kids and a dog. Um, And, you know, that works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. So, you know, really encouraging 
that opening of, of mindsets about what people are striving toward and realizing, you know, what's a good life for them. Um, more sort of pointedly, um, important barriers for achieving sort of more collective models of housing. Um, first of all, uh, similar to the last point, that there's actually not very many successful examples of, say, collective co-housing developments in New Zealand. Um, so it's a relatively foreign kind of model of development, which makes it a little bit scary, right? Whereas um, in in Europe and the U.S., there's quite a lot of examples, and increasingly in Australia too. Um, so just getting that familiarity, getting some good examples of, of different ways of building and living, can really go a long way for people to see. Oh, that can that can work here. Um, but there's a lot of a lot of barriers standing in the way in terms of the regulatory environment and the financial environment. So most district plans, for example, don't accommodate collective approaches to housing, like co-housing or papakayanga. Um, they're oriented to the conventional development that's been, you know, rolled out in this country for the last 50 to 100 years. And those specific plans need to change the market for purpose anymore if we are going to open up these possibilities. Same with the financial institutions. They don't tend to accommodate collective approaches to ownership, although I see that might be changing with some institutions now that housing prices are so high and some families are needing to look at, you know, co-owning a place together. So maybe just due to financial pressures alone, that might be starting to shift. Um, there's currently no legislation around collective housing development, so they can only be done on the unit title model you know, at the moment, but that the Titles Act is not currently fit for purpose. Um, and, you know, the, the regulatory process is actually difficult to navigate for anyone, even for more conventional development, unless it's your everyday job to navigate it. Um, so it's even harder when you're trying to do something that's, you know, seen as unconventional or different or challenging the status quo. So we need to sort of enable these pathways um, that help people you know, experiment with different things and try different things and um, and be a little bit more fluid about what it is we, we actually build and, and learn from, from how we build and how we live. That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.